You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. We have a propensity for uh, self-destruction, don't we? Huh? It says in the Word of God in Isaiah, it says, we all like sheep have gone astray. In the Hebrew, it says, all we like sheep have jumped in the ditch again. (laughs) Uh, If you need more convincing that this isn't who we really are as a human race, just, just look to Twitter and let me give you three examples of that. This guy whose handle is, I wear a onesie, said this, my wife said I need to grow up. I was speechless. It's hard to talk when you have 45 gummy bears in your mouth, huh? I wear a onesie, wow. Thankfully, my daughter didn't marry that guy. At Simon C. Holland, headed to Goodwill to buy something back I donated yesterday because this is my lesson on why marriage communication is so important. (laughs) At Kent W. Graham, I don't understand how God can have 10 commandments for the entire world and my wife can have 152 just for our house. He said it, not me, okay? Uh, A biologist, E.O. Wilson, has a doctorate from from Harvard, has taught there, and he asked this fundamental question, which is really interesting. Are human beings intrinsically good but corruptible by forces of evil, or the reverse, innately sinful yet redeemable by the force of good? Isn't that an interesting question? Are human beings intrinsically good but corruptible by the forces of evil, or the reverse, innately sinful yet redeemable by the force of good? Well, we want to hear what you think about that. And I'm really, really interested to hear what you have to say. So pull out your phones. You can use it for the survey, then turn them off, okay? But right now, use them. So go to slido.com, and there's the number you put in. And then uh, we have four options on this. Which do you agree with? A, humans are intrinsically good but corruptible. B, humans are innately sinful but redeemable. C, both. D, ask my wife, she keeps my opinion in her purse, okay? Those are the four. So pull your phone out, and while you're doing that, we're going to watch that video clip again, because that's just, you got to get that in your, you got to share that. If you want it, I, uh, Matthew, you can give it to you. So E.O. Wilson, I'll give you the second half of his quote now. The first part I read before, are human beings intrinsically good but corruptible by the forces of evil or the reverse innately sinful yet redeemable by forces of good? This is the second half of the quote. Scientific evidence suggests, uh, researchers, when they use the word suggest, that's always you know giving them wiggle room, but anyway, scientific evidence suggests that we are both of these things simultaneously. 
Each of us are inherently conflicted. The Bible has a really nuanced view of of humanity, which is really important to understand. First of all, the Bible makes it clear that we're made in God's image, which means that, that every human being has intrinsic worth. They were made in God's image. But it goes on and tells us, the Bible does, that we are corrupted by this inherited sin nature So there's something seriously and deeply wrong with us. Good and evil are at war in our lives. Uh, The Apostle Paul in Romans 7 said it this way, O wretched man that I am, I do not do the things that I should do and the things that I should not do, I do. Bruce Springsteen in an interview said it this way, It is a sad man who's living in his own skin and can't stand the company. Huh? I've sure been there. Jesus taught us in this scripture and elsewhere that to live a truly good life, sin must die. And dying is painful, and dying is scary, and dying is downright inconvenient, isn't it? But to experience Jesus' life, sin in us must die. We're infected with a spiritual cancer which can't be tolerated or it'll damage or destroy God's life in us. C.S. Lewis said it this way, The terrible thing, the almost impossible thing, is to hand over your whole life to Christ. God's design, the Bible makes clear, is for life. He is a God of the living, it tells us. In John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Those that believe in me, even though they die, physically will live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die spiritually. Sin's consequence, the Bible teaches us, is death. In Romans 6, 23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. But the cross's design, the purpose of the cross, was resurrection. Let's go on to the second half of Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So the big idea from today's scripture is that God needs to kill what is killing you. Will you let him? God needs to kill what is killing you. Will we let him? Verse 23 here in Luke chapter 9 says, If anyone would come after me, if anyone would be my disciple, Jesus is saying, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus said he's the way, the truth, and the life, that abundant life and eternal life is found in Christ. The blessed way is found in Jesus. So how do we walk with Jesus? First of all, he said, deny yourself. That doesn't mean to deny your personality or your personhood, but it is to deny your sin nature. Deny the darkness that lurks in the corners of our mind and our heart and in our habits and soul. Another way to say it would be deny selfishness. And then he says, take up your cross, which is to invite God to put to death our sin nature. The cross in Jesus' day was a symbol of terror. It was the worst of the worst criminals who were crucified on the cross. And uh, if you've ever been to Israel, you know this, that the Romans invented crucifixion, and they would crucify people on major thoroughfares. It would be like C-470 and and I-70 there. And so everybody would have to go by and see it because it was a a means of terror 
to hold the people in subjection. And so he is shocking the people that are listening to him, taking up your cross. But Jesus said that sin is something that we can't compromise with. There has to be the death of our, of our selfish ego. And sometimes that feels humiliating and frightening. Will people respect me? If I do that, won't I lose myself? What will it cost me financially or socially? And dying to anything in our life disrupts the status quo and our comfort. But God must kill what is killing us if we are to truly live. Then he says, not only deny yourself or deny selfishness and take up your cross, but then he says, take up your cross daily. Death of our sin nature, it's a moment-by-moment process, isn't it? Today will I be bitter. Today will I be greedy. Today will I gossip. Today will I be selfish. Today will I be lazy or a coward. Today will I lust. Have you noticed that life is difficult because it's so daily? You have to get up in the morning and you need to brush your teeth and take a shower again. It's just, you know, daily. And it's the same thing with Christ. It's a process. And then he says, take up your cross daily and follow me. Following Jesus is the way of life the way of wholeness. It's a relationship and a walk with Jesus where he is our leader and we are the follower, that he is the shepherd, we are the sheep. When we get ahead of him, what do we do? We jump in the ditch again. But when Jesus leads us, he leads us to green pastures. When we walk our own way, we think it's the right way, but we don't know the implications of it. Only Jesus knows the right way, and sometimes it's counterintuitive to where we think we need to go. It's like the old Jewish parable where there was a, a servant that went to his master and said, Master, can I borrow a fast horse? Because I was in the market today, and I saw death, and death made a threatening gesture at me, and so I want to ride my horse to Tehran, and, and so I can hide from death. He said, absolutely you can. Later, the, the master went to the market, and, and uh, he ran into death, and he said, why did you threaten my servant? And death said, I didn't threaten him. I was surprised because I have an appointment with him tonight in Tehran. <laughs> That's what Jesus was getting at in this scripture. Look at verse 24. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever follows his own understanding and goes to Tehran to avoid it, is going to end up in the ditch. But whoever loses his life for my sake, in other words, trust Jesus to lead me rather than my own understanding, will save it. Jesus was saying that selfish living is a lost life. Timothy Keller said it this way, sin is suicide of the soul. Jesus is the guide to true life, to a healthy life, to a life of fellowship with God. Do any of you, are you fans of the, the 80s cult movie, The Princess Bride? Have you ever seen that? And there's this great scene in there where Wesley, West, who's the, the farmer's kid, uh, he dies and his friend Montoya takes him to the village doctor that's brilliantly played by, by Billy Crystal. And, and Billy Crystal says, says this, he says, he's not dead dead, he's just mostly dead. I just love that. And I think that's, that's a spiritual problem for most of us. Our sin nature is, is not dead dead, it's just mostly dead. And that's a problem right there. So in verse 25 it says, What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, to have 
selfish success and yet to lose or forfeit his very self or his soul. And Jesus is saying that success built on selfishness is spiritual death and that the most valuable asset in your life is nothing financial, it's nothing material. The most valuable asset in your life, according to Jesus, is your soul, your eternal soul. All the money, all the pleasure, the power, the popularity in the world is nothing in comparison to the essence of who you are, your life, your soul. Remember during the Christmas season, we sing, Oh, Holy Light. Do you remember those lyrics? They're so powerful. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared, and I love this phrase, and the soul felt its worth. Your soul, my soul, is so valuable to God that he was willing to sacrifice and give his son on the cross to save our souls. Our souls are eternal and of incalculable worth. You see, your soul is the essence of who you are, and your soul is your destiny for our words, our decisions, our values, our habits, our actions are all contingent or just upon the substance of our soul or just a reflection of what is in us. Remember Jesus said that what comes out of our mouth is just evidence of what is in our heart. Verse 26, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus is saying that he wants a covenantal relationship with us. The best way for us to understand what a covenantal relationship is, is marriage. Marriage, Christian marriage, is a covenant. A covenant has contractual obligations, but it's based upon love, and it's based upon sincerity. And so, for better or for worse, rich or poor, forsaking all others, keeping yourself only unto her, so long as you both shall live. That's the covenant love. And Jesus is saying here that to have a relationship with him, to be his follower, we need to enter into covenant, which is a total commitment. That's why he's saying, if you're ashamed of me, if you were ashamed of your wife, you'd have a terrible marriage and probably you'd have a divorce on your hands at some point. And it's the same thing here with God. Ancient Christian leaders taught that there's two paths in life, in curvous uh, say, which is a life turned in on itself, it's inherently selfish. And there's temporary reward when we live a selfish life. We may make a lot of money living a selfish life. We may have a lot of pleasure and be able to do a lot of things, but it's exhausting because it can always be lost and there, it's, there's insecurity there. It's like the, the Russian oligarchs, all of a sudden their, their yachts are being taken away. Um, it's divisive, it's competitive, it pulls us away from other people when we're uh, living a selfish life. It's also the path of least resistance for our sin nature. It's the most natural thing in the world for a human being to be selfish. If you haven't, if you don't understand that, go and watch little kids for a little bit and you'll see that that's the way it is. Uh, in curvatus say, the inherently selfish life is the path of the world's culture. It's the path that, that just go with the flow. It's the, and it's also the path to spiritual ruin and bankruptcy. The other path is excurvatus say. And it's a life lived outward for the glory of God. It's a life of service. 
It's a life of love. It's eternal. It's the pathway ultimately to peace and joy and to kinship and to fellowship. If you walk in the light as I am in the light, he cleanses from all unrighteousness and we'll have fellowship with one another, it tells us in 1 John 1. But Jesus said that this path, ex curvatus say path, is the narrow and the difficult path. It's the path of the kingdom of God which is always resisted by Satan, the evil world system that's in rebellion to God and our sin nature. So let's get practical about this. What does it mean to follow Christ? There's a spiritual, practical, ultimate, and power issues we're going to look at briefly before we go into communion and worship. First of all, the spiritual issue, which is death of a spiritual cancer within us, that God wants to kill what is killing me. In Colossians 3, 5, it says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Ephesians 4.22 says you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Let's look at one example, which would be bitterness. St. Augustine said this, bitterness is a poison you drink expecting your enemy to die. Bitterness is a sickness of the soul. Bitterness kills peace and joy in our heart. Bitterness interferes with our sleep at night. Bitterness tears apart families, doesn't it? Bitterness ages our bodies prematurely. Bitterness feeds the need for alcohol to numb the pain. Ephesians 4.31 tells us, get rid of all bitterness. Take our bitterness to the cross and crucify it. May it uh, die there. Be dead to bitterness. That's the way of Jesus. That's an example of God wanting to kill what is killing us. Before we go into the practical issue, let's see the results of the, that survey. This is going to be interesting. Um, humans are innately sinful but redeemable. 46% said that. 33% uh, said humans are intrinsically good but corruptible. 21% said both. 0%, oh, the men in here, you know, you are so mature. <laughs> don't, don't lie to me. There's a few men in here who said, I want to hit that, but I'm not showing up on that screen. <laughs> so right there. Or, or I need more counseling, one or the other. I don't know which one. So it's a spiritual issue of our sin nature needs to be put to death moment by moment in Christ. But it's a practical issue. Practical issue in the sense that it's been said that you don't really know, you're not really prepared to live until you know what hill you're willing to die on. Navy SEAL Rich Devinney said it this way, if it doesn't hurt, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> in 1854, the most important issue in American politics was slavery, as you can imagine, and whether it should be allowed in Nebraska and Kansas territories. For 30 years, the policy had been the Missouri Compromise that prohibited slavery in any territory north of the 36th parallel, which is the panhandle in, in Texas, approximately. But the Kansas-Nebraska Act repealed the uh, Missouri Compromise. So in 1854, Congress decided that the matter of slavery should be settled by the vote of the people who were living in that territory. Uh, so political candidates became defined by that issue, whether they are for or against the Kansas-Nebraska Act. In Illinois, Abraham Lincoln was against slavery, obviously. 
So he was known as an anti-Nebraskan. James Shields was his opponent in this race, and he ran on the opposite side of the issue. Back then, state legislatures were the ones that elected senators, and in Illinois, the anti-Nebraska, the uh, people that were with Lincoln, had a slim majority. So on the first ballot for senator, Shields had 41 votes, Lincoln had the most, he had 44 votes, and another anti-Nebraskan like Lincoln, Lyman Trumbull, had five votes. No one had the requisite 50 votes for election, so another ballot was cast, and another ballot was cast, and another ballot was cast, and uh, they still didn't have an election. No one had the 50 requisite votes for an election. Lincoln wanted to be a U.S. senator, but he knew that Trumbull's diehard supporters, all five of them, would never give up, and it was more important to him for the U.S. to stop the spread of slavery than for him to be elected senator. So on the 10th ballot, Lincoln committed what was perceived as political suicide. He announced, I'm for Trumbull. And he instructed his supporters to vote for Trumbull, who had only been getting five votes, but was holding back the election, and uh, Trumbull was elected uh, U.S. senator. Political pundits thought that Abe Lincoln's career was dead because of this. But Lincoln knew that standing against slavery was more important than his political career. In other words, Lincoln knew what hill he was willing to die on politically. He ended up physically dying on that hill, didn't he? When we take up our cross, deny our sin nature, and follow Jesus, we need to know what hill we are willing to die on. By the way, the phrase... What hill to die on is rooted on Jesus dying on the hill of Golgotha. Jesus knew for us to be saved, for humanity to be saved, he had to die on that hill. What hill will you die on? Very practical issue. Will it be the hill of believing Jesus is the Son of God, our Lord and Savior? Are you willing to die for that? That's in this scripture. Theophon the recluse said this, every struggle in the world's Training, whether physical or mental, that is not accompanied by suffering, that does not require that most effort, will bear no fruit. You've seen that uh, it's common knowledge that, that uh, butterflies need to struggle to get out of the cocoon because that's how they, they strengthen their wings and are able to fly. That if you cut the cocoon and so they don't struggle to get out of it, they, they're handicapped and they end up dying. The struggle is needed. The same thing in our lives. We don't get stronger without resistance. Practical issue. Ultimate issue. Eternal life, life after our body dies, is found only in Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the tomb. Only a radical identification with Jesus' death and resurrection is the path to eternal life. It says in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. The greatest power in the universe is God's love. God created the universe out of love. He created us, humanity, out of love. And the highest and the best human endeavors are because of God's love. But for love to be in our hearts, anti-love, our sin nature must die. 
My granddaughter, Juju, calls me Pop-Pop. And uh, Pop-Pop allows Juju to eat my ice cream. And I love ice cream because I love Juju more than I love ice cream. Huh? When our kids were growing up, if they would get sick, I'd clean up after them. Why? Because I love my kids. I would dog sit Baxter, my son and daughter-in-law's Henri miniature schnauzer, you know, even though he'd mess on my carpet because Colleen would make me do that. I'm going to tell the truth. That's not because of love. But according to Jesus, there's a heaven, there's a hell, there's a judgment after we die. And according to Jesus, we need to be, live each day in preparation for that inevitability. Psalm 49 is so powerful. It says this, They trust in their wealth and boast of great riches, yet they cannot redeem themselves from death by paying a ransom to God. Redemption does not come so easily, for no one can pay enough to live forever and never see the grave. Can't buy your way out of that. Eternal life goes through the cross. No cross, no resurrection. No resurrection, no eternal life. That's the ultimate issue. But then there's a power issue. God's power is unleashed in a crucified life. You want to see God's power alive in your life? You have to go to the cross. To share in Jesus' resurrection life, we have to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Next Sunday, Jim will be preaching, I believe, on the transfiguration. And there we see in verses 28 through 38, 36, Moses and Elijah representing the law and the prophets and Jesus with their resurrected bodies, their eternal bodies, like unto the body that we will get when we rise again. It says in Ephesians 1, 18 through 20, I pray also that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened in order that you may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realm. I have a picture of friends of mine. And uh, back when I was in seminary, in Southern California, I got a call from Wally, who was that young lady's uh, uncle, and he said that Lori, that's Gary and Lori, my friends, uh, that Lori was threatening suicide and would I go over to their house in La Puente, California. So I went over to their house and she was sitting in a lazy boy and I kneeled down next to her and she smelled like alcohol. She'd been drinking. And uh, I just shared with her about God's love, that God loves each one of us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for us. And that the way for us to be forgiven of our sins, but also set free from slavery to sin and for the hurts of our heart to be healed, it needed to be in Jesus Christ. And I asked her if she wanted to ask Jesus into her life as Savior and Lord. She said, yes, we prayed together and I left. I was there for probably about 40 minutes is all. And I left and I've been around enough alcoholics in my family and being a pastor and just growing up and so forth that I knew that maybe she wouldn't even remember uh, the next day what had happened. But the next Sunday, they came to our little church plant that we had started and uh, her life was changed. There's more to the story, but it's even today, you know, uh, decades later, they're still following Jesus Christ. That is the power of the cross, the power of the cross. And friends, we need to remember that what it tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that God's promise is joy for the joy set before him. Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Jesus endured 24 hours of hell, mental, emotional, physical, spiritual hell. He endured that because of the joy set before him. 24 hours of hell, Jesus endured taking the punishment that you and I deserve so that for 2,000 years approximately since then, he has been in heaven at the right hand of the Father praying for us with joy, with joy that sheep like Dennis can get pulled out of the ditch instead of dying. And it's the same thing here, folks. Dying to the sin nature, it's scary, it's painful, it's costly, it's inconvenient. I'm not saying it's easy, it's hard. But the other side of it is not only resurrection, the other side of it is restore to me the joy of my salvation. In your presence is fullness of joy. There is joy, friends, when we allow God to crucify our sin nature, and that's what communion is about. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, symbolic of the breaking of his body, and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after the meal, he took the cup and he said, This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sin. Drink this in remembrance of me. As we come before the table, let's draw near to the Lord. If we seek him with all of our heart, we will find him. God bless you.